<laughs> but when it comes to innovation, uh, it takes grit. It mm-hmm. takes it takes uh, a lot of times where you're embarrassed because you you don't have the answers or you don't you you missed a step or you were told no. Um, I say pick yourself back up and quit complaining. And get back after it. Welcome to the Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. I'm Chloe. And I'm Dan, and we're your co-hosts. Our mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force Logistics Enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to the Tesseract Podcast. My name is Chloe, and I'll be your host today. Today on the show, we are joined by Master Sergeant Retired Von Strutt and Master Sergeant Ben Jonas. Great to meet you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for being on the show today, guys. It's exciting to talk to y'all. So to start off with, could you each share a little bit about your backgrounds? Why don't you go go ahead first, Bob? All right, so I joined the Air Force, started out as a maintainer, so S-16 avionics. Uh, I was a backshop electrician. Um, Then I went and visited uh, Red Flag, and I saw that there was an opportunity to work with pilots out in the field, and it was I was the I had the opportunity to be the down pilot, so I got to experience what a SEER specialist does, and then realized uh, that was my calling. And then I switched over, and then I did SEER the rest of my career. Um, a part of that had the ability to see true problem statements at the edge, and then I decided to uh, start to solve those and became an innovator, and fell in love with the Air Force AFWorks program, starting Spark Cells, and then. I uh, decided to retire, transition that to the outside. Okay. Excellent. Awesome. <clears throat> yeah, so Bon and I have been working together for several years. Uh, we did a lot of uh, military free fall and static line parachute operations together and all over the world. Mm-hmm. And um, we, uh, we were innovators for a long time. Um, so to go back that far, same thing, I, but I came in as a SEER specialist, a true blood, as they would say. <laughs> uh, so I came in in 2004, so I've been doing this for about 20 years. And um, the personnel recovery mission and the ability to keep people alive and bring them home, just it, it calls out to you. It's something that some of us are made for. And mm-hmm. we spend all of our energy, you know, all of our waking hours trying to make the, the chances of survival increase over time and then to get people back. So eventually you start to find these institutional problems in the way and you start to figure out what kind of walls do I need to knock mm-hmm. down to, to get my mission accomplished. And so that mentality, being uh, somebody who can improvise and change the game to try to accomplish your goal, really um, brought me to a point in my career where I had deployed all over the world in every combat zone. And I said, uh, I found a group of innovators that are going to help me change it. And we, see, we started um, with Tony Perez, the Phoenix Spark cell at Travis Air Force Base. And then we quickly trained other wings how to, how to do Spark activities. And then AFWORKS kind of picked that up. Um, so it started at AMC. And, and of course, now you can see what it is today. We have Spark competitions. And uh, there's a spark sale on almost every base. And even the Army has copied us, has done a lot of that work as well. I don't know. Um, and through that mentality, uh, I think the biggest impact that we had after Spark began is I, uh, I designed a 
combat capability during a deployment in Iraq to help deal with navigation interference. So all of our navigation signals that are being jammed are being spoofed across combat zones. Um, I found an opportunity to solve a very hard problem that nobody was willing to go after. And it was the same mentality. We knew that we had companies that would be willing to help us, and somebody had to really just deconstruct the problem and start start getting after it. And so we fixed it. Within six months, we wrote a joint urgent operational needs statement, a JUANS, and uh, we prototyped some solutions, got them on aircraft, got them on the ground, did a combat deployment and evaluation of it within a year. And now we have, uh, I don't know, close to 100 deployments around the world, including uh, two to 300 sensors going on LEO satellites over the next couple of years with the Space Development Agency. So that's kind of how how my innovation career has gone, um, which which took me into um, to SOCOM, where I started uh, dealing with some very complicated problems. And I I saw SpaceX launching lots of vehicles, and I said, you know, there's there's big problems coming for my community for rescue. Mm-hmm. And I knew that we were going to have to start mm-hmm. thinking about how to rescue people in space. So I started writing about that. And I got the attention of a lot of generals and admirals who wanted to see us mm-hmm. take the next step and learn more about it, which is how I got to the Air Force Institute of Technology. And so that's where I've been for the last few years. Um, and now I'm wrapping up my PhD. And my focus area is space rescue, specifically lunar search and rescue, which I'm sure we're going to get into more. And uh, so that's that's me in a nutshell, I think. In a nutshell. In a nutshell, that's all. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, that's, that's incredible. Um, both of you mentioned there um, kind of earlier on, I, we will definitely get to all the space and the lunar search and rescue, just a couple questions. Um, but both of you kind of touched on innovation and breaking down institutional, you know, red tape essentially, um, that it took to make things happen. So how did you, uh, both now and at younger points in your careers, handle the, you know, seven different no's that you had to go through to get to yes? Yeah, so we we talk about the frozen middle often. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember, once I I read this phenomenal article about the frozen middle, guess who I sent it to? Every 05 that I knew, (laughs) um, and every chief master sergeant as well. And, and it, it was supposed to, it was designed to help you determine, are you the frozen middle? Because nobody thinks it's them, mm-hmm. which is one of the most ironic things about the whole problem area. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're not trying to find a way to yes, then you're probably in the frozen middle. Mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, that's kind of how things went for me um, as I started to take this innovation track. Um, if you're organized and your, your ideas are sound and you've peer reviewed them with folks who are smart enough to say, yeah, I think you're on the right track. This seems like it's worth investing time and energy into. Mm-hmm. You'll find that uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of risk-averse people in, in your leadership chain. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, you have to just get, <laughs> I hate to say it, you have to go around them. You have to get to the one step above them mm-hmm. because sometimes um, perhaps that 06 level is the one who can see the value and, and what you're proposing. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, of course, there's red tape and there's political interest with, within and without of the government. Um, and where we find ourselves quite often is, um, is describing the problem and coming from a, a position of ignorance. So a lot of people don't deconstruct the problem properly. So one of the biggest things that we, I think, pride ourselves on is truly understanding the problem well enough 
that we think we can articulate a good hypothesis for a way forward. And if you're using data-driven decisions and recommendations, it's very compelling to a commander. So my biggest advice to a lot of folks who want to break out of the, out of the box, um, you sure have to get it together before you start to make those types of proposals, right? Um, but I found myself uh, going, um, going outside, far outside of the chain of command on a regular basis, but having the trust of my immediate leadership to do that. And how do you build that trust? You have to have a, a, a track of progress. And, uh, and, of course, you have to show that you're performing at a certain level. Um, that's Not everybody's going to get there. And uh, if you feel like you should be there and you want to get there, I mean, education is one of the best ways you know, to help you, help you get along that path. Um, and then just really getting good mentorship from somebody who is on that track which is kind of what we spend a lot of our time doing is mentoring airmen, um, soldiers, sailors, Marines, because mm-hmm. this isn't just about the Air Force. This is, I mean, our goal is to win. Like, we are trying to win against great powers. And to us, it's not about promotion. I mean, people always ask me, how are you, how are you a Master Sergeant? <laughs> master Sergeant getting a PhD. Um, I have 17 deployments, you know, five in combat zones. Uh, and how am I not, you know, uh, Colonel, they're always asking me, and, is, and I always tell them, well, it's because what we're doing is not about recognition. Right. It's about winning. That's our strategy. Yep. Um, I would say in the early days, trying to get through that frozen middle was very tough until Tony Perez came around. And <laughs> what he did was uh, got the money into the units. And having that in, initial uh, investment, that seed funding for innovators, kind of reversed the question now commanders had this money sitting in their in their account they're like hey we need to spend this so it it turned into asking for solutions versus trying to push and everybody saying no um but that was just part of the way so that that kind of opened the door to move to the next level and get past that frozen middle um and those funds still exist today and there's so many more things that have come online to support those innovative ideas but I, i would say that that is a is a resource that's out there that a lot of people don't realize how to quickly start tapping into that, getting with their local spark cells, getting with the test rack and getting their problem statements uh, pushed up. You got to do the due diligence and have a solid problem statement and do your own research. Uh, but it, it's really exciting now to see that those, those avenues are available for those individuals out there. Yeah, I think that's a great way that you put that, that the seed funding and the availability of those funds changed it from people having to ask and push those ideas up versus now commanders searching for ways to spend that money mm-hmm. has changed the culture behind yeah, it's a, those it's, ideas. It's grassroots, but it was kind of directed from the top. You will do mm-hmm. grassroots innovation. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, you know, some people say, hey, I don't know innovation, but they do know problems. And so there's, there's value in being SMEs in the problem space. Yeah. And that's really, really valuable to industry. Mm-hmm. So when you're working with SIBRs, you know, that's like the gold. That's the currency. If you're a true problem owner, uh, you can get a lot of traction in finding solutions out there. Yeah, yeah. And so just to, to add to that, what we found is in the beginning, the most successful model was I have a problem that I've taken a lot of time to deconstruct and to articulate what I think we should do. Mm-hmm. And then we would pitch it to uh, Silicon Valley, small companies, mostly startups, they had a lot of engineers and scientists and tech folks. And they would say, hey, can we take a crack at this? And, and you know, as an operator at the 
tactical level. You're like, sure, I can't wait. What can you come up with? And they would give you proposals with with a cost associated with it. Mm-hmm. And of course, at that point, you're ready to go to the boss and say, I have the problem, I have the solution, all you have to do is pay for it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then of course, what the boss would say is, well, I don't have the authority to institute these changes or to spend this money. Right. And so there is born Phoenix Spark. And that's when we had a whole mm-hmm. council at AMC that said, okay, well, let's actually look at it and see if we can approve funds to go to this. Let's talk to the Transcom and AMC commander and see if we can waive some of these things. Let's talk to Boeing and Lockheed and see if we can fast track um, these 3D printed parts, <laughs> things like this that, you, that just makes sense. Um, and uh, I think it's really interesting because eventually the wings mm-hmm. were just given money. They're like, just stop asking for us for money all the time. Here, take some mm-hmm. and then do everything you can with that. And as the price tag gets bigger, come back up to us. So I think uh, when you can get every base a tranche of money at the beginning of the year to spend on innovation. I think it, we can call that a win. Um, incentivizing it. Yeah. Because <laughs> you want people to consume it. Oh, yeah. Lose it. Yeah. yeah. It makes me think of, we'd say a lot of times, you inspect what you care about, but you could probably say the same thing about money. You mm-hmm. spend money as a wing or as a squadron or as a force on what you care about. Mm-hmm. And so by dedicating money to innovation, we're saying we, we care about this. Absolutely. By opening those avenues. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, um, you said if you aren't finding a way to yes, then you're probably the frozen middle. Mm-hmm. And I just had a question there of if you, how would you as a leader want to know? Like how would you, if you are the frozen middle and you want to know if you are the frozen middle, um, what are strategies for kind of like <laughs> one, you know, opening your eyes to that, but also working through that? How do you become not the frozen middle? I, I think you should still man your position um, if you're mm-hmm. going to say no, uh, you should understand that problem that the individual is trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And if, if you don't see value or you know another way, that's a good time to advise that individual. Like, hey, there's another program. Mm-hmm. There's money funding. I can connect you. So it's still not a no, but you're, you're, uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're providing can- counsel to that individual. But you're still giving them a pathway, right? You're still not being a hard no. Mm-hmm. But if you're just flat out saying no because you're re- you're you're – scared to take a risk with your leadership and stick your head out, mm-hmm. um, that, that's probably a red flag, right? If, if, you're, okay. if you're not incentivized to uh, help champion that idea, mm-hmm. uh, you need to ask your question, yourself uh, why, mm-hmm. what, what's preventing you from doing that? And then you'll probably come to the answer that you're, you're part of the frozen middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think when we all joined the Air Force, um, I, th- I think when we all join the Air Force, I mean, assuming most of us are Air Force in the line, mm-hmm. we're told there's a waiver for everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like at some point that mentality drops off in, when you're in leadership. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of us are afraid to go ask to break the rules. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was really interesting was, um, what was it? Uh, to, was it under Secretary Mattis? Um, a few years back, we were told, hey, throw away every AFI, start fresh. <laughs> that was a direct attack against the, this mentality of mm. we can't do that because. Instead of, yes, we can do that if, mm. which is really what, what you need to compete against nations like China. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think China has the kind of problems that we have to say an AFI says no? They really don't. Mm. Um, so if we're looking at competing uh, across nations, especially when we look at the instruments of national power and how they are wielded, 
um, we are in a unique position, in our, especially with the Air Force, to leverage uh, an incredible number of innovators that are, that are creative. And this is really what, how we contrast against other nations that are competing at the first world level. And, uh, I mean, we're, we're World War champs two times in a row for a reason, okay? Um, and all you have to do is you ins- inspire these young people um, to go out and stick their neck out and try something. And you know what? It's, it's going to fail a lot. Mm-hmm. We always say fail early, fail often. Yeah. That's true, even with ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever I have um, an airman, soldier, sailor, marine approach me and say, you know, hey, I got this idea. This is where I think you should go. What do you think? Sometimes uh, they don't have enough information or, or experience to make a good recommendation, but they know there's a problem. And so instead of me saying, hey, you just, you just don't quite get it, let me just quiet you down and go back to work. Instead, I steer them to the direction they need to, to, to get educated. And I say, if you really care about this problem, I'm going to connect you with the people who are going to help you get smart on it, for one. And then I want you to come back to me with what you think the problem is. I want you to go deeper, keep going deeper. And uh, if you are in the frozen middle, that is not your first instinct. Your first mm-hmm. instinct is to, is to you know, snuff out the flame and, and go down. back to work, right? Mm-hmm. That scares me. Don't say that again, go back mm-hmm. to work. <laughs> but if, you are, if you're enabling innovation, if you're enabling uh, people that are ready to grow, and want to and want to actually take us to the next level, then you should be connecting them with your network. You should be finding out who they should be connected with. It's funny. I got a. We were just talking about this um, last last week. Yeah, or the week. Yeah, the week prior. Um, I was at the hackathon event with the chief in, uh, information officer, uh, Stuart Wagner. It's a it's a great guy. He came from Microsoft, and so he joined joined the Air Force as an SES to go help take on some of our information problems. And so he's been running these hackathons, which I encourage Airmen to go look up, by the way. Hackathon mm-hmm. Bravo 100 is about to happen in Germany in a month. You can register today. I don't know when this is going to publish, but I hope you get on there. <laughs> um, so in Hawaii, we had 700 people participating, and we had 71 sponsored problems. And um, I-, I thought it was brilliant because I went there with a real-world pro- real problem, and I was able to... Uh, recruit 14 uh, innovators onto my team, some with very little coding experience. Uh, we did very well, and we, we were able to design a convolution neural network um, and a machine learning algorithm to remove the human from the loop on a very complicated problem. And so we probably saved 100,000 man hours a year mm-hmm. in one week. Mm-hmm. I would have probably paid uh, close to a million dollars to a company to do what we did in a week. And I'd say about five or six of these kids that were helping me had zero coding experience, didn't know how, what, what a UI is, <laughs> user interface. I mean, they, they, were at, they were at the entry level. And I gave them some mentorship and guidance in the beginning and gave some homework. And by like the third day, they were writing Python code for me, doing complex, complex statistical analysis. <laughs> I was super proud. And so I got a call from uh, one of their chiefs. Uh, well, I guess I'll call him out. So Senior Airman Holmes, a maintenance guy, uh, he just was a great personality, um, inspirational young man. And so he performed so well, the chief called me and said, hey, what do I do? What do I do with this guy? 
you know, we're proud of him. He came back and told us that we won, that our team won first place out of 71. Is that true? And then that's the first thing I said, yes, that's true. And we couldn't have done without him. And it didn't matter that he wasn't, you know, an academic. Right. And all it takes is you, you have to have heart. You have, you have to have the, the will mm-hmm. uh, to try to break something, <laughs> you know, break something and put it back together and uh, just have aptitude. So I would say uh, programs like that inspire me. And at this chief who called out to me, he said, hey, so should I send him to Germany? He wants to be back on your team again. <laughs> and I said, absolutely. Let's get him back out. And then so now we're going to talk about how to commission him and maybe get him into a cyber career field, maybe warrant officer. Uh, so there's people out there that they they want they're hungry and they're trying to find these avenues and so this hackathon was that that breakthrough moment for this young man mm-hmm. um, and those exist those opportunities exist out in the Air Force you don't have to meet someone like me to get there but I'm also happy you know my LinkedIn I'm sure you guys will have it on here I'm happy to mentor anybody who wants to get into the mm-hmm. into this kind of uh, unorthodox career field track. Mm-hmm. Um, and trust me, SEER, SEER specialists don't typically do astrophysics. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not usually, it's not usually it's not where we find ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not in the CFTP. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we do find is that uh, SEER specialists are empowered to be autonomous most places mm-hmm. we work. And we probably have the most autonomy of any other career field, I would say, from the beginning, from, from A1Cs, uh, enlisted. And so I think that, that kind of gave us the rope we needed to hang ourselves or to do amazing things. And, <laughs> and that's, I think, why Bon and I have been able to uh, kind of push the envelope. But now I think we're in a good position to teach other people how to do it, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. I love what you said that you took people that didn't have any experience at all with coding, because I hear hackathon personally as somebody who has no experience whatsoever. And I'd be like, that's probably <laughs> not where I should put myself. But you had people that were passionate and that just right. wanted to be involved and wanted to see what what they could do and they showed up and made a huge right. difference <clears throat> yeah. that's right neural diversity having people that mm-hmm. think about the problem in different ways is the key mm-hmm. right building that team and getting um, the way you think about it versus somebody else you're going to come up with totally different solutions and mm-hmm. somebody that can orchestrate that into a the end solution that's really powerful um, mm-hmm. but that's that's those are the skills you need to be able to uh, think about the problem know your 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 area of expertise like you guys reference that your superpower know what that is mm-hmm. and then come to the team with that be able to uh, take criticism um, but it's super exciting when you know your ideas are adopted and you see them propelled forward so that that keeps you going and that's kind of like a little bit of energy for the next project and mm-hmm. before you know it you have more projects in time yeah <laughs> that's exciting um, so multiple times both of you have mentioned education and if you have a problem the more that you can know about it the more powerful you can be and the more you can advocate for that problem so education can mean many things mm-hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about what you mean and maybe the different kinds of education that that you're talking about well bon why don't you first talk about the kind of education that afworks has created under the, the spark developments and challenges and cyber support and PIAs because there's a lot out there that people can access now that I think you probably tapped into before. Yeah. So with the education is really um, understanding the problem. That's one form of education. Uh, being able to do problem deconstruction. There's, yeah. and I'll just give an example of who I work with now, uh, WBI, Wright Brothers Institute. We put a lot of emphasis on this stage of solution development all the way through commercialization mm-hmm. is the problem deconstruction. 
Uh, we get we invite people. We have workshops. We whiteboard it, and we really do that root cause analysis. So understanding those pro those processes on how to get to the actual problem is, in the end saves you a lot of money, saves you a lot of time, and it allows you to get on a very a very narrow trajectory. And you're you know you're you know you're solving the problem, so you're you you're not spending additional resources. Um, Afworks, you know, they, they spend a lot of the time on doing uh, the education where the spark cells, trying to uh, teach uh, innovators how to be a TPOC, right? Once you, I learned a tremendous amount about industry by being a TPOC, how industry actually executes versus um, how the government executes. That was eye opening to me. Um, and can you go into TPOC? Can you just yeah, you're a technic- that out for us? Yeah, you're a technical POC. So when okay. you want to do a cyber project, um, with the small company. business innovation research. All right. Yes. Yeah. So small business innovation research funds. This is a a source of funding that uh, the nation has um, given to the research lab. You know, it's a congress- uh, congressionally allocated. I think six hundred million dollars, but it's to grow our industrial base. So dual use technology, something that has to be um, uh, able to convert into military application and um, our commercial application. Well, in that, if you can speak both of those languages, you can help move one of those uh, projects. Um, so being involved with a, being a TPOC allows you to be a SME on the government side, and you really get to um, shape that entire project and how those funds are executed and what the end state of a cyber phase two, for example, uh, looks like. And the ultimate goal is that phase three transition. Um, and a, being a, a true dedicated TPOC um, increases that success dramatically um, because you're right there iterating along with the company. You're putting the solutions inside of exercises. You're getting it out in the field. You're doing these small-scale uh, tests and evaluation, which that, that company would typically spend you know, potentially millions of dollars to try to do this when you know, things like I would put on and jump out of the aircraft to collect data for, give it back to the company. They're like, hey, how did you do that? It was just, you know, something I'm just that, doing my job yeah, we, could, we were just doing our job. We just it's integrated how you get to it. work. Um, yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> and the neat thing is, and I'm still working on some of those projects. So, time mm-hmm. uh, learning uh, that some of these projects do take time and it takes a certain catalyst to move them on. But that'll, that's my side of the education on the, you know, the, some of the processes, being involved with it. I learned how things mm-hmm. worked and I found better ways to do it. Um, different organizations to work with that had different pathways. So you're constantly evolving on how you move one project. Ben's got a different take on the education, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah, I'm an academic now, whatever that means. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so everything you talked about with what AFWorks uh, lays out for you, you can access a lot of this stuff on their website. I'm going to do my shameless plug for the Air Force Research Lab now. Um, so AFRL does actually have a, a SME Library, and I don't know, I don't remember how you access it because I get emails mm-hmm. that might not go to everybody. Um, we might have to look this up after, but the AFRL does have a, a subject matter expert, um, um, some kind of process where when a company has a particular technology they want to work with the government for, mm-hmm. AFRL finds SMEs that they have in this Rolodex, and you can choose what you're an expert in, and then they will they will tap you when they say, hey, can you help with this? Um, what's funny about that, they've been doing that for a few years, is that Bon and I have been doing that for 10 years, mm-hmm. um, but without the Rolodex. You know, this is more more direct. We, it's a, really a network. I mean, you get contacted all the time. Mm-hmm. We're constantly writing letters of support 
to companies who we know have a technology that fits somewhere. I would say probably what we spend a lot of our time doing when we engage with a, a company who's not yet contracted with us is we tell them, we let them pitch to us what their technology is, and then we tell them where we think they fit in the U.S. government, like what a good use case is for their, for their science. I mean, a good, a good uh, example of that is, do you remember the cold quanta uh, super chilled atoms mm-hmm. uh, technology that was brought to me? Um, we have a company that they're doing on the space station too. They're firing a laser through a, a vacuum sealed container that is super chilling atoms. And um, as frequencies pass by it, they've, they are excited and cold and they vibrate in a certain pattern, which you can analyze through an optical node off the end of the laser. And uh, what's really cool about this is they're like, where do we go with this? <laughs> like, wh- like, what does our technology do? And so I don't want to talk about what it was supposed to be for, for my use case, but I told them exactly where they need to go. Um, and yeah, I was like, we have a very particular use case for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would never know that, you know, not having the expertise. Um, so you may find yourself as being this expert and you're like, you just don't know what kind of technology exists. Um, so matching up companies. And how do you get smart in that? You have to see a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to see a lot of use cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so being involved in uh, and those partner inter- partnership intermediate agreements, the PIAs, like WBI is one. We have Softworks, which works with mm-hmm. SOCOM, Soft ATNL. Mm-hmm. And um, then we have Catalyst Campus, which is one that works directly with uh, the Colorado Springs side of the house and all the Space Command folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one that works in the Space Vehicles Directorate. That's uh, New Space down in New Mexico. Um, and there's a few more out there. There's, uh, there's an Austin uh, location that just picked up um, that AFWorks is working with that I haven't been out there yet. But my, my point is there's, there's the, your wing spark cell. Then there, there's these uh, events and these PIAs that are well open their doors. You, anybody can go in there and talk about ideas and write on the board and, and start figuring things out. That's kind of like a, before I use my TA, you can go that far, right, to kind of figure out how to innovate. Mm. Now, beyond that level, I encourage anybody and everybody to get as much education as possible, especially with how easy the Air Force makes it. Now, it did take me 10 years to get my undergrad, <laughs> but that's also because I was deploying constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I finally did and I finally finished, um, I had probably 190 credits, <laughs> changed colleges four times. But the way I look at education, um, as I went into my master's degree, so I, I, I earned two masters and I said I'm about to finish the PhD. Um, what I've learned through that academic path is that education gives you tools, right? Just that's all it really does. I mean, you can learn about subjects and get smarter on them, but it's giving you tools. And uh, a good example of that is when we went to the hackathon. I would have never in a million years before I went to AFIT said, oh, man, this really looks like we need a convolution neural network and machine learning. <laughs> and I would have mm-hmm. laughed at myself for saying something like that. And people use the word AI all the time and have no idea what AI is, which is also cracks me up. Um, but, you know, you find out that you have tools and you know how to use them. And then you know where you can apply them to really hard problems. Mm-hmm. So the way I'd say education plays in is... You find something you're passionate about that's really interesting, and then you find a way to get paid for it. And acad- academia is the same way, right? So find something that's really fascinating to you that you think you can make a difference that you're passionate about, and then just go after it. Just you know, set your set your target. Um, I, you know, a lot of people ask me how did I do so much school because I'm going to finish uh, the master's and PhD in three years, uh, just under three years. So a lot of people ask me how is that even possible. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And for once, sleep is not not a priority, obviously. <laughs> uh, I'm always on the move, uh, TDY and flying around, and I'm a, I'm a professional skydiver as well, so I'm, I'm constantly traveling around the world, jumping into football stadiums and, and doing tandems. And Well, I just jumped an 87-year-old Friday. That's uh, was one of the undersecretaries of defense. So, <laughs> like, like I'm just always kind of doing all this crazy stuff. And people wonder, well, how do you do it? What I do is I set, I manifest it. I, I set um, a deadline that I have to have something done, and then I set progress of, of achievement and milestones, right? Mm-hmm. Achievements and milestones of Poenam, and I set these these gateways that I have to hit. And if I don't hit those gateways, I know that I'm off the critical path. And um, that's actually how I've done all my research is I will set a conference. I say, hey, I really want to present this idea at this conference. And I'll start there and I'll throw an abstract out. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just know, like, hey, I've got to meet that date. And then I, I put the pressure on myself and, and then we eventually get there. So far, it's worked. So you really just have to organize your life in a way that you understand this is a marathon. It's not, it's not a sprint. And so ac- mm-hmm. ac- the academics is... Uh, is similar to that. If you know you want your, especially to enlisted folks, if you want your bachelor's degree, let's say you want to go to AFIT, you say, this sounds great. I want to do rocket science too. Um, then you need to set your target of when am I going to apply for AFIT and walk yourself back from there. And then you need to figure out how many classes you need to take. And then you keep the momentum and pace, you know, and, and work your way towards it because any of us can do it. Any of us can do it. I'd say one big thing that I saw a departure in between how Ben and I were operating in the innovation space, Ben started writing a lot. He started writing around uh, the problem, started writing around space recovery. And, <laughs> you know, I was taking some of his, his early writings and white papers and sharing them around, and you know, people would laugh at it. You know, they see these rockets of SpaceX on there and recovery. They're like, I thought that was a joke at first. Um, and it, it started to manifest into seriousness. And... It was mm-hmm. it was due to his writing, and I think that's how you guys may have found Ben to some of his early writings on you know LinkedIn and share socializing these ideas. Mm-hmm. Then you start to find other people that would have been other, otherwise siloed working on similar projects. So then he starts to socialize these ideas, in putting his thoughts on paper, and it allows other people to be critical of it. And then he says, great, you're really you're one of those people that are trying to solve it too? Cool, join my team. So then he starts to build these large teams based off of these early writings. And now everybody that would have said no to the problem is now on the team. And that is really, really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Um, I think, and I think that's something we should definitely talk about is how do you build teams, right? Yeah. Unorthodox teams, because usually the Air Force says, this is your team, do stuff with it. Right. The Air Force issued friends right. is, is like a reason. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And uh, your best friends club, you know, often you all have the same job. Mm-hmm. Um, my, and on my teams, rarely do we, does anybody do what I do. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the work that I'm doing has nothing to do with jumping out of planes or rescuing anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it so, goes back to kind of the neurodiversity that you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. If you want yeah. the breadth of, of backgrounds and breadth of mindsets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So how do we build a team like that? How do you do it? Exactly. Like he said, I mean, it's a good point. I do, I do a lot of writing. And I encourage everybody to write as often as possible and to not, you know, feel like um, articulating ideas on paper is a chore or an assignment. Mm -hmm. It's your opportunity to share ideas forever. It's your opportunity to 
leave a legacy and you don't know where it's going to go. You have no idea where that, where that paper is going to go. Um, and I think the time where I really, uh, I think how I was really inspired by that is um, I had a commander that loved white papers. And I mean, he was a two-star. He was a, so he, now he's the JSOC commander. Um, uh, Admiral Bradley, he was one. And then um, Admiral Howard was another, both Navy SEALs. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they loved papers. And that's when I really started cooking on papers. I was like, okay, <laughs> if, that, if I want to talk to the two-star without sending a meeting and mm-hmm. you know, having a lot of people in between myself and a leader, I mm-hmm. can write to them. Mm-hmm. And a white paper is way more powerful than an email. Um, and now with the way AI works, you can put in some of your ideas. I te- I, so when I teach at AFID, I teach students how to use AI for education um, in a safe way, not to, not to obviously do anything um, um, that's not unethical. Uh, instead, I say, hey, if you, wanna, you have a complicated piece of code, you don't know how to start, tell it all the things you want to do and tell it to write you a template, then start fixing it. If you have a, uh, something that's no QE considerations, you know, it's nothing that's sensitive. Mm-hmm. You throw your ideas in there and say, I want to somehow articulate this, and this is the level that I want to speak to, and I want it to be about this long. Pop it in AI. It pumps, it pumps out 30%, 50% solution, and then you can go from there. So if you're not a good writer, I encourage you to lean on AI as a, as a coaching tool, yeah. not as somebody who's going to do the job for you, but as something to kind of get you started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, you'll become better and better at writing. And yeah, so the uh, it's so funny you say that the, um, the 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 space rescue white papers that I wrote in Iraq, um, those made it to a lot of generals, and they made it to uh, the NRO. I remember this vividly. They made it to the NRO, and the NRO made a um, <laughs> they pitched it to NASA as one of their as one of their problem solution areas, like in two thousand. 20, I think it was. Remember I told you about that? Mm-hmm. And so I, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, we want to learn more about this so that we can mm-hmm. speak to NASA on your behalf. And I was like, oh. what? <laughs> so, um, and how many years at that point would you say that you've been writing about that before somebody finally came to you and was like, hey, we saw this and we want to hear more about it? Yeah, so I started writing about um, when, when SpaceX, I think that was 2018. 18, yeah. 2018, SpaceX announced their Earth-to-Earth rocket system. And so the first thing I thought was if they're going to move people and equipment from Earth-to-Earth, we can eventually use that to rescue people anywhere in the world in under an hour. Oh, interesting. That was the first thing that mm-hmm. popped in my head. And, and if you're out there and you're an innovator and you're thinking, mm-hmm. well, how does this guy think about rescue you know, with rockets? You all have your own field that you spend all this time thinking about. And then when you see something that's out there, like, how do I dual purpose that? How do I take that commercial idea or capability and then apply it to, to my expertise? Because mm-hmm. everybody can do that. And so then I just started writing about it. And I started to build um, an entire architecture around that concept. And then, I don't know, three months later, the president announced that the Space Force was going to stand up. And that's where people stopped laughing. They're like, okay, hold on a second. (laughs) There's an actual Space Force now. It's going to get real. Um, And so that was in 2018. So fast forward to today, and we just spent the morning uh, sharing and presenting with the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and Johnson um, some of the very very technical requirements of a 
position navigation and timing and communications constellation architecture for uh, reporting and locating the, the location of a astronaut in distress on the moon and how we're going to accomplish that mm-hmm. in, a, in a high order manner. Yeah. So, you know, we don't have meetings like that because those white papers floated away into the distance. Now, it doesn't mean everything you write is going to get picked up, right. um, but how else can it if people don't see it? So I encourage you to um, to be to be um, not only not only uh, brave, right, to put yourself out there, um, but also to to not be afraid to discuss your ideas in the open and take the criticisms, right, and not be afraid to change your position a little bit or nudge nudge left and right, because eventually uh, somebody's going to want to pay you uh, a lot of time. And or money for that uh, for that idea. Yeah, oh, that's so good. So, in our last couple of minutes that we have, I would love to hear um, to the airmen out there that might feel like they don't know where to start, and they know that they have problems, or they know that they want to get education, or they don't necessarily feel like they're passionate about where they're at, but they don't want to leave the force either. Um, if you could give some advice to them, what would you say? I'd say continue to stick with it. Mm-hmm. Find your local spark cell. Like that, if you haven't found that yet and you've got problems you're trying to solve, I think that should be your first uh, mm-hmm. spot to get educated on how to start working on that problem. Mm-hmm. The resources available. You know, that's, that's why the spark cells are stood up to mm-hmm. empower those individuals, incentivize them, and then keep work keep trying to work on that problem because as soon as you do it's so exciting it takes you on these <laughs> adventures of you know failing there's a lot of failure a lot of no but mm-hmm. it just each time you get to that failure but you see a little incremental in- increase in where you were trying to go uh, it just makes it that much more exciting and um, knowing that there's there's real world problems that are affecting uh, the lives of for me it was um, the individuals that were down, right, lost at sea, right? They have families out there. And, you know, so for me, that was a oath I took was to uh, prevent that from ever happening in the training. You know, that was my full-time job. But I felt it wasn't enough, so I had to find another avenue to continue to work on this. And that that really kept me inside because I had the advantage of staying on the inside of the government and really trying to solve those problems from, from the inside. It, it becomes much more difficult. Uh, take it from me, one month out, uh, it, it immediately becomes difficult to work on those problems on the outside. So stick with the government, but find a pathway through the spark cells, and you'll, you'll find resources and people that are willing to help uh, champion that through. Yeah, it's uh, a great question. Um, should To stay in or to get out? Um, <laughs> You know, I I, uh, I owe the Air Force a few more years, of course, because of the education that I got. Um, and people often ask me, like, why are you going to stay in? Well, for one, I owe it to them because the, the Air Force has given me so much. But at the same time, once you step out of the door, you lose access and placement. You know, you, you're coming at this from a position of uh, commercial interest a lot of times, mm-hmm. as opposed to altruistic from the inside. You know, your goal is to to help the government. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really just depends on what your motivations are. And I'm not going to tell anybody that, that uh, I'm not going to say, hey, you have to stay in because that's the patriotic thing to do. That's not really the right answer. If you're passionate about what you do or you see that there's an avenue in the, in the military or in the government that you think is something that 
is in your destiny, find a way to get on the track. Don't just give up because the track is hard. We're all going to fail, you know, and you're not going to be good at innovating in the beginning. You're going to be terrible at it. (laughs) I mean, that's the whole point. It's part of the growing pains. And so as you you decide what you want to fix and you set your side on it, and you've decided that this is this is something worth fighting for. My next advice is to is to start knocking down all the doors you have to to get there. And I mean, for me, for instance, I knew that we needed autonomous vehicles to start rescuing people here on Earth, which is something else we we've worked on together. Now we're actually testing and flying autonomous uh, VTOLs, electric, um, at AFRL. Uh, but I knew that we we're going to need autonomous vehicles to go save astronauts and that we needed a satellite constellation on the moon. I didn't know anything about how to do that, right? <laughs> I don't know how to make an autonomous rover. Uh, and I just decided if that's what I want to help solve, if that's where I want to use my expertise, my background, then I need to actually go get the tools and put them in my box so that I can mm-hmm. achieve that. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I went out and got educated in the year. It's the reason why I went to AFIT. It's the reason why I'm here talking to NASA. It's the reason why... Mm-hmm. Um, it's the reason why I'm finishing school so fast mm-hmm. is because I care about it enough. And um, you just need to look inside yourself. Like, what do you, what do you want? Like, where do you want to be? Where do you want to be in 10 years? Start, start moving to get there now. Don't say, I'll start on this in nine years. I always say, if you wait till the last minute, it only takes a minute, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but when it comes to innovation, uh, it takes grit. It mm-hmm. takes... It takes uh, a lot of times where you're embarrassed because you're you don't have the answers or you don't you you missed a step or you were told no um i say pick yourself back up and quit complaining get back after it mm-hmm. <laughs> i would i would say the onus is on the air force too to keep people in right absolutely so, um they can't they can't make it difficult for uh people to want to innovate by having the consequences of doing that you know you're distract you're you're uh, not doing your primary duties because you're working on this project mm-hmm. and seeing that as, as a negative thing. So the Air Force has to find a way to incentivize those individuals because industry is out there chomping at the bit to get to them uh, because mm-hmm. that's the talent that they're looking at. So uh, Air Force and talent management should be a priority with those innovators and find them early, help grow them, and then they will be long-term assets uh, versus you know letting that that fire burn out early and then start looking for other ideas that you know that are incentivized by money or other opportunities. So the, I I don't think the onus is on the individuals to want to stay in. I think it's Air Force needs to work on the talent management, make it and make it incentivized for those people to prosper inside the government doing um, innovation and um, yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm still in uniform, so he gets to say all the things. Yeah. <laughs> I get to say some of the things. <laughs> but, uh, no, he's right. Um, the Air Force uh, has some areas that they can improve. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they know that. This isn't new. And this isn't right. some, but it's not easy either. You know, it's like, uh, it's like our chief, chief of staff, C.Q. Brown, said, um, we have to change, right? We have to innovate, change, or lose. Right. And now he's taking that mm-hmm. campaign uh, to the chairman's position, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we're going to hopefully propagate that across the services. And, but what does that mean, innovate, change, or lose? Um, well, to some airmen, they're saying I am innovating, and I'm trying to change things, but I'm losing. 
Right. And so how are we going to answer that person's mm -hmm. mail? How are we going to inspire them to continue trying mm -hmm. when they're being held up for making the next step? Mm -hmm. um, and so I would encourage them to find a way because eventually their generation will be the ones making the decision about whose ideas move forward. Mm -hmm. They're going to be the ones that get to thaw out the middle, that frozen middle, if they get the opportunity. So ultimately, I would say um, if the Air Force was uh, incentivizing to the degree that commercial could compete with, they would probably go broke pretty fast. Um, my, yeah, because my, my offers are about five times what I make now. Um, and so they can't compete with that. It's just not possible. But there are a lot of things that they can do to ease the pain because most of us want to wear the uniform. Most mm -hmm. of us came in for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, I watched the Twin Towers get hit, and I joined the next year. Mm -hmm. um, and so I came in to stop evil. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I feel like we've accomplished that in many places of the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I think all of us want to minimize suffering and maximize the good times again, right? We want to we want to help the country do good, um, and we find ourselves in these conflicts all over the place. Mm -hmm. And um, if we have a way that we can, uh, you know, minimize loss across the force, we will. And so there are smart people in the force that that can help us do that. And mm -hmm. so, you know, Bon and I are here to help them get there and achieve their goals. So, please make sure they know there is <laughs> there are. Uh, <laughs> There are allies amongst them, enlisted allies. And, um, yeah, I feel like the enlisted force is stronger than it's ever been in history. That's so good. Yeah, we'll definitely make sure to link for both of you. I know you've both kind of offered mentorship. And Absolutely. So we'll make sure that we link that for people in the show notes so that they can see that. And um, this has been awesome. I feel inspired listening to both of you <laughs> talk about that. Um, so we just so appreciate your time and, and the great conversation today. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Tesseract podcast. We learn something every time we record an episode, and we hope you do as well. As always, we love to connect with our listeners. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services, such as books, movies, or businesses, are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.